2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Well, good evening. Um, my name's Stuart, and um, I'm on staff here, and I oversee the student ministry along with Tom and Emily, and uh, um, yeah, it's a uh, Really exciting to be here uh, tonight to look at this passage with you. Um, Shall we pray together before we come and look at this passage together? Lord, we do thank you. Um, thank you for, for the scriptures. Thank you for um, the incredible wealth um, that you have given us in them. And we pray that as we unpack this passage, think about this passage together tonight, that you would um, speak to us, encourage us, teach us, and change us. Amen. Great. Well, uh, the French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire once famously said, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be merely a museum piece. Well, he died in 1778, um, and this was last year's entry into the Guinness, World, uh, Guinness Book of World Records under uh, the topic of best-selling book of non-fiction. It reads thus. Although it is impossible to obtain exact, exact figures, there is little doubt that the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book. A survey by the Bible Society concluded that around 2.5 billion copies were printed between 1815 and 1975, but more recent estimates put the number at more than 5 billion. So Voltaire was wrong, um, but it is an interesting question to ask why. Why is this book, the Bible, the scriptures, as, uh, as they're called in our passage, why have they continued to capture the hearts of literally billions of people since, since Voltaire? And also, you know, why do we value them as a church? You know, if you've been here for any length of time, you will have noticed that uh, we are a community here committed to uh, the scriptures. If you come on a Sunday, you will notice that we spend a significant proportion of each of our services unpacking the Bible together. Or if you come to one of our small groups in the week, maybe uh, a home group or connections here on Wednesday, you will find that we spend time unpacking the Bible and trying to understand how it applies to our lives. Or so why is that? Why do we spend time doing that? It's worth thinking about. It's worth asking why we do that. In our passage tonight, we... Uh, find the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, is writing to his uh, mentee, the young church leader, Timothy. And this is actually one of the last letters we have from the Apostle Paul. And in it, we find him trying to pass on to Timothy some of his greatest life lessons. It's like he has to distill a lifetime of leadership 
lessons, a lifetime of, of, of living for, for Jesus into a few short books, a few short chapters, and he's trying to get some of his deepest convictions across. And we find in our passage today that he's trying to impress on Timothy this one thing. Don't let go of the Bible. Don't let go of the Bible. And I just think some of us need to hear that today. Don't let go of the Bible. He says, rather, press into it, learn it, wrestle with it, um, take it to pieces and put it back together. Uh, commit yourself to studying it, not only for yourself, not only because it will bring life to yourself, but because it will bring life to the church that you lead. Why? Why is, is Paul so uh, strong on this particular point? Well, um, this week and next week, we're going to be looking at the topic of the Bible and scriptures. We're in a, a series, we just started a new series called Things Christians uh, Know. Things Christians Know. And we're looking at this topic of the Bible. Um, and that's great. And this week, we're going to be looking a bit more at the why. The why, the importance of the Bible. And, and, and next week, we're going to be looking a little bit more at how. How do we read the Bible fruitfully is next week's topic. But I want to look this week at three convictions that Paul shares with Timothy, three convictions he has about the Bible, which is why he thinks we need to press into it and uh, take hold of it and not let go of it in our lives. And you know, I think many of us uh, might have a kind of, we sort of we have this niggling suspicion that the Bible is important. It kind of, we, we know that's sort of true, but many of us also still struggle to make it a substantial part of our lives, to really commit to it in the way that Timothy is being impressed upon to do here. Well, maybe it's because we haven't quite come to share these three convictions that Paul has. I don't think I've met anyone who's really uh, found a deep relationship with Scripture who hasn't come to share these three convictions that Paul has. So let's look at them together, and hopefully they will encourage us to go back to Scripture and press into it. The first conviction that Paul seems to have about uh, the scriptures, about the Bible, is about its source. About its source. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you were the editor of a major newspaper, um, and and uh, one of your uh, one of your journalists came to you and they said, "Look, I have got this exciting uh, story, and I want to put it." Uh, front page, I want it to be front and center uh, in this week's edition. Um, I hope that one of the questions you would ask this uh, overkeen journalist would be, okay, well, that's great, very exciting story, but what, who is your source? Who is your source? Because you know, it might be an exciting story, but if we don't have a source that's reliable, someone who knows what they're talking about, then if we put it on the front page, we are going to be embarrassed. It's going to be a waste of time and of space. Who is the source? And I don't know whether you've noticed this. It's an important little thing. But often, um, as the person who comes up in our services comes up and they will read the Bible passage, as happened tonight, and then not always, but sometimes they will end by saying the little phrase, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word 
of the Lord. Now, I prompted Jana to say it this week because I thought it would be embarrassing if she didn't at this. Uh, but we often say that, don't we? Have you ever thought about what is being said or what is being claimed when someone says that? Because if you take a second to think about it, it's, it's an absolutely extraordinary claim. It's an, in fact, some might say it's an outrageous claim. The person's reading the passage from this book they've got in front of them, and then they're sort of saying, if you like, you know, take note, <laughs> listen carefully, God is speaking. God is the source of what we've just read together. And that is an extraordinary claim. Why do we say that together? Well, we haven't, you'll be glad to know, we haven't just made that up. Um, actually, it is consistently throughout the scriptures, we find that the writers of scripture make the same claim. In the Old Testament, often the books or the prophecies begin, thus says the Lord, or something like that. In the New Testament, uh, they say, I saw the Lord. This is what Jesus said to me. And this is a conviction that Paul has come to share. And it's the claim that he makes in our passage in verse 16. It's easy to miss, but it's absolutely huge. He says in verse 16, I've come to the conviction that all scripture is God-breathed. That God is the source of scripture. Now, does he mean, does he mean, does he claiming that God kind of is the kind of, did God pen the Bible? That God sat down and wrote it himself and then just handed to it? That at some point, the Bible just magically appeared and, and then we had it and no one else was involved. Well, no, not at all. Um, all the way through Paul's letters, he talks about the different authors of Scripture. You know, he mentions uh, Moses and David and others and, um, uh, and things like that. It's not, when he says that, it's not a denial that other people, just like you and me, um, were involved in writing the Bible. You know, as I said, um, Moses and David and Luke and whoever on earth wrote Hebrews. We have no idea who wrote Hebrews. Um, but what Paul is making a claim about what he has to come to conviction is that there is an author behind these authors. There is an author behind these authors. And actually, this image that he gives us of being God-breathed is a really, really helpful one. It's one that comes up a lot in the Bible. And if we kind of just remember some of those instances, it helps us understand what he thinks about what's going on here. Think of the first one that is mentioned in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, okay? It says that the earth, the, the cosmos, was formless and void. It was there, but it had no shape, substance, or life. And then what's the next thing it says? And the breath of God, or the wind of God, or the spirit of God was over the waters. And then we get the cosmos gets created as if God breathes life and shape and purpose into the universe. The next time we see this is we see it in chapter 2, where a uh, very similar image, God is making Adam, the first human being, and we see him forming and fashioning Adam out of the dust. And then, uh, but, but Adam's not alive yet, and so the picture is of God breathing into, face to face, into Adam, and he comes alive, and he has life and power and purpose, and he can know the God who's created him. Some of us will be familiar with the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37. God is talking to Ezekiel the prophet 
about how he's going to spiritually revive the people of Israel. And he gives Ezekiel a picture. It's a, a picture of a valley of dry bones. And just, just bones as far as you can see, dry and dusty. And then uh, God says to, he says to Ezekiel, speak to the bones in my name. So he speaks in his name. The bones assemble themselves into bodies, but there's no life in them. And then, he's, then what happens? God comes and breathes. And this, this, these, this, this uh, uh, kind of valley of, of, of bodies becomes a, an, a living army for God. It becomes alive and purposeful. And maybe the most relevant for our uh, passage today, um, in John chapter 20, um, after Jesus has risen from the dead, but before he ascends to heaven, he uh, stands for one of the last times in the upper room with his disciples. And he's speaking to them. And first of all, he commissions them. He gives them a purpose. And he says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He gives them a commission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then it says, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Throughout Scripture, the image of God breathing on, on things is one of God bringing a personal, powerful, uh, accompanying presence that brings life and purpose to things. It, it, God like takes, picks up things and makes them alive and useful in his hands. And he does it by accompanying those things with his presence. And so what Paul is saying is that all, when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed, is he's claiming that in all of their diversity, in all of their limitation, in all of their cultural context, and even in all their brokenness and sinfulness, nonetheless, the writers and editors of Scripture have been personally accompanied by God. They've been guided and guarded. And as it says in uh, Peter writes, they've been carried by the Holy Spirit. So that when we read the Bible, yes, we do hear men and women speaking to us. But also, more importantly, we hear God speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. That is the conviction that Paul has come to. That is the conviction that the church has come to. There's no way of proving this. You read the scriptures and you hear God speaking to you. But that's what the church has found over the ages. God speaks here. Here are a couple of books that I am reading right at the moment. Uh, here's a little book, a very, very short book, um, called Rethinking Genesis on the book of Genesis. I'm doing that because I'm speaking on Genesis at student night on Tuesday. Um, but you know, you go to the back of any book and you, there's a little vignette on, on, the, on the author, isn't it? So uh, at the back of this one, it says this, Gordon J. Wenham studied in the universities of Cambridge, London, Jerusalem, and Harvard, and taught full-time at the universities of Belfast and Gloucestershire. He is now adjunct professor at Trinity College, Bristol. He is best known for his commentaries on Genesis, Leviticus, and Numbers. And that is why I'm reading this book on Genesis, because of the source, because of the author, it's worth listening to. This one is a slightly bigger book on the Holy Spirit, which I'm really enjoying at the moment. And again, you turn to the back, and there's a little thing on the author, the author, John Owen. And it says, No outline of Owen's life can give an adequate impression of the stature and importance to which he attained in his own day. 
He was summoned to preach before Parliament on several occasions, most notably at the day, uh, the day after the execution of Charles I. And it goes on at length about how awesome John Owen is. That is why I'm reading a book by John Owen, because of the, the source, because of the author. I wonder if some of us have begun to let go of the Bible, or we've never really engaged with the Bible, because we've kind of forgotten the claim that's made about who is speaking here. Who might want to speak to you here? You know, I don't think as Christians that we can say seriously, look, I'm interested in listening to God, if we're not interested in listening here where God claims to have spoken. And I just want to lay out the encouragement or the challenge, you know, God wants to speak to you. And, and he has spoken here. Will you listen? Will you listen? That's the first conviction Paul has, the biggest one. God is speaking here in the scriptures. He has and he still is. But the second conviction Paul has about scripture is about its subject matter. That its subject matters. Uh, I worked really hard on that one. Um, so he, he thinks that scripture is really valuable. It's really, really important. Uh, he says that uh, he says all scripture is God breathed, and then he goes on and useful. And actually, that word "useful" is kind of uh, another way of translating it. In a couple of other translations, it's translated as profitable, or valuable, or beneficial. It's like there is profit to be had here. And I wonder if some of us just need to regain that sense that yes, this is there is profit to be had in these pages. It's not just from a reliable source, it's, it's on a life-giving topic. Paul says here, doesn't he, just before that, in the verse before, he says that the point of Scripture is that it is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In these pages, the topic is salvation and faith through Jesus Christ. In other words, God, in these pages, he shows himself. He reveals himself. He speaks about himself, principally in Jesus. And he shows us the way to himself, the way to a life with him, an eternal life with him. And I just want to just remind us that this book is about the most important things in life. It is to do with our souls. It is to do with eternity. It is to do with justice and right and wrong and life and death. God has spoken to us about the most important things, himself and our souls. And, um, you know, sometimes people say to me, it's normally a bit of a defensive mechanism, you know, oh, but I don't want to read the Bible. It's a bit of a waste of time. It's so outdated. It's so outdated. You know, we live in an age of science and technology and progress. We know so much more these days. Why would you want to read the Bible? It's so outdated and irrelevant to modern life. Well, you know, um, I happen to have spent a bit of time with some of the world's top scientists. Um, I mean, some of you are here, so that's the start. But, um, uh, you know, when I was doing my master's uh, here, I, I, I spent a year in the labs in the chemistry department with, and I got to know over that whole year in the labs, some absolutely fantastic, brilliant scientists, you know, PhDs and fellows and postdocs, and uh, got to know them over lunch and, and many hours crying over experiments not working. And I've also, I worked in a, an innovation consultancy company after that. And again, I met some of the 
cleverest scientists I will ever meet there, just absolutely brilliant. And I got to know them over, over um, many lunches and dinners and all the rest. And I'll let you into a secret. Do you know what keeps up some of the most brilliant scientists in the world at night? You know what keeps them up at night? Well, you might be surprised to know it's not the size of the universe or the complexity of the atom. You know what keeps them up? It's what keeps you and me up at night. It's how they can help their son or their daughter who has kind of lost direction in life and doesn't know which way's up and has just gone off the rails. That's what they want to talk about at lunch. It's how they can um, save their relationship, uh, which, is, which is on the rocks. And they don't know. They don't know how to engage or forgive or, or relate. And they're just stuck. It's how to make the right decision in, in this big dilemma that they're faced and what is right and what is wrong and who can they go to be told to find where, where, that's, uh, where you can find that. It's about their, their father who's about, you know, who's got Alzheimer's about to die and suddenly the question, what, what does that mean? Where, what happens after that? And what happens to me after I die? These are the things that matter and these are the things that keep people up at night. You know, and the Bible is not out of date. It has, and it always will, address the most valuable subject of all. God has revealed himself to us in these pages. And with that, he's revealed to us all the most important things in life. How he relates to us, how we can know him, the, 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 the way he wants to help us, the purpose he's made us for. These are the things that matter. These are the things that matter. And you know, there is nowhere else that we can go for this kind of thing. I know that sounds like a bit of an exclusive claim, but it is true. There's nowhere else to go for these truths. I was on holiday this Christmas. I was really excited to be on holiday back in my homeland, South Africa. And um, uh, we got uh, some wonderful time on the beach, um, uh, which was incredible. And then uh, we also went up to uh, a big national game reserve, national park up called Shishlui in um, uh, the north of South Africa, and it's absolutely amazing. I love going to game parks. And as we uh, arrived there, uh, we had sort of a little thing where our family gathers around, and we all name one animal that we'd like to see. And this has got more and more hard over the years as you've seen more and more things. So everyone was naming, I'd like to see this, because uh, I haven't seen it before or whatever. So I got to meet, and I, one of the animals that I named I wanted to see was I wanted to see a wild dog. Um, that's not just a wild dog. That's a wild dog. That's an entirely different thing. And they're really, really rare, really, really hard to see because they're, they have enormous territories and there are very few of them in a given area. Um, they're really reclusive and they're quite hard to see. So I've never seen one. I've seen lots of other things, but I haven't seen wild dogs. So I said, I want to see a wild dog. Anyway, hen we, henceforth, we commenced battle with the game park and there was, uh, we really went for it. So there was a game plan. We were up at four o'clock every morning um, and uh, that's the best time to see the animals. So we were up at four o'clock, uh, had a quick cup of coffee, and then we were off. And we took our lunch with us and all our snacks with us so that we could drive. And we were all over the park. We did like 11-hour days looking for all these animals. We, you know, we had to wait in this hide for two hours, and there was like bat poo everywhere. And it was just like, but we were really into this. So, anyway, so we spent like a whole bunch of days looking for these animals. And at the end of it, we'd seen loads of incredible things, but we hadn't seen a wild dog. And it came to our last day, and I was a bit disappointed. Oh, well, there's always next decade. Um, uh, 
But we, we, we were going to drive out of the park on our way out. We're finished, but we thought we'd get up a bit earlier and see if we could just take a bit of a detour on the way out. Anyway, we got up early, and I, um, just before we got into the car to leave, I had my cup of coffee, and I was just sitting there for 10 minutes of introvert time at the beginning of the day, sitting outside of our little house. This is the house we were in the middle of the camp. So we hadn't gone anywhere. And out of nowhere, out of the bush, just out of the right, this wild dog just walks out of the bush. There's no fences, by the way, no fences. It just walks out, and it just walks right in front of me, probably about right there. Like, that's the distance you could kind of check. Just walks slowly, looks, looks at me and Yana, and then just wanders off into there. And I will never be that close to a wild dog. It was amazing. And it was funny, like days and days of searching. You know, if a wild dog doesn't want to be seen, you won't see it. But if it walks out in front of you, how amazing is that? Well, you know, God is a lot like that. <laughs> you know, if God doesn't want to be seen, you won't see him. There is, there, is, there is no, all our searching, millennia of searching and guessing about God will not get us one iota closer to guessing what he's like and his heart for us and what he wants us to do and the way to him. And, and um, you know, there's no analogy for him in this world. He's not like anything in this world. There's no corner of the universe we can go to find him. But if he reveals himself, if he walks out in front of us, we can know him. We can see him. And you know, he has... And sometimes it seems so, like, overly simple that he has done that, that we almost take it for granted. We just, it's like it's here. He's revealed himself in Jesus, and he's revealed Jesus to us in the scriptures. It's like, it's too simple. We, we take it for granted, but he's done it. He's shown himself to us, and with it, everything else that's valuable. That's why the psalmist says the word of God is more precious than gold more valuable than silver, more valuable than anything else this world can afford. That's what the queen is told when she's handed the Bible at her coronation. This is more valuable than anything else the world can afford. And I just want to remind us that we have a gold mine in our hands. You may have nothing else to your name, but if you have a Bible and you're willing to ask God to meet you in it, he will make you rich. That's the promise in the Proverbs. He will make you rich. Paul had a conviction about the subject matter of Scripture, that the subject mattered. And finally, final conviction Paul had about Scripture is about its power. Its power to change lives, to change things. Mahatma Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian, said this, Nonetheless, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it was nothing more than a piece of literature. Now, if he got that, how much more should we not get it? But we don't, do we? So often, we, we still see the Bible as just kind of a text. It's just there. It's just static, maybe sort of a library or a storehouse of facts about God. But I want to remind us that God has not abandoned his word. You know, one of the wonderful things about God is he can speak then and still be speaking now. He's alive in his word. That's why the writer of Hebrews says about the scriptures that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces down to bone and marrow, divides bone and marrow. It's active in our lives. And 
I, I, I'm really encouraged. You can't really see it in this light, but if you uh, get a moment uh, to look, you should look up there at the strap line uh, just below the, um, on the back wall, below the, the um, coat of arms. It says there at the back of our church, uh, this, these words, my word shall not return unto me void. My word shall not, good old Simeon had those carved on the word. And that is a great promise to remember about God's word. It comes from Isaiah 55 where uh, God says this to Isaiah. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and um, bread for the eater. So my word that goes out from my mouth, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. When God speaks, he has a purpose. He does not speak without intending to change things. And he accompanies his word until it is done. And that means when God speaks to you, he intends to change you. Reading the word of God is a lot less like reading a newspaper or an article and a lot more like sitting yourself down on the sculptor's table and letting the sculptor get involved in your life. When we read God's word, because it's his word, we should expect to change. And Paul tells Timothy a couple of the ways in which we should expect to change when we read the, read the Bible. And it's helpful for us to have them in our head as we come to, the, to read. First of all, Paul says, Scripture is useful for teaching. For teaching. Now, in other words, what he's saying is that when you come to the Bible, you should expect to learn. You should expect to have your views changed. Now, that seems the most utterly basic approach to the Bible. But it is amazing. Do we come to the Bible expecting to learn? There is a place for verse for the day. I'm just going to get a little bit of encouragement there is a place for that. But do we know that God wants to utterly transform our view of the universe, himself, ourselves, those around us, through what he has to say here? If you give him the time, he will renew your mind. You want a good place to start to see that God sees the world differently to you? Go and find the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, gives the Beatitudes and he basically tells you, uh, this way is up and that way is down and it's the opposite way to you thought. And, and, and God wants to change the way we see the world. Do you come to the Bible to learn? That's the first thing. Secondly, all scripture is useful for rebuking and correcting. And these are a bit of a pair. The first one's a negative, a rebuke, stop, you're going the wrong way. The second one's positive, correcting, getting us back on the path. In other words, Paul's saying we should expect to come, to come to the Bible and be challenged about our lives. To be challenged about our lives. We should expect to disagree with the Bible and be wrong. You know, the Bible gets a lot easier to read when you start assuming that it's you that's wrong and not God. But you know, it's, it, it, it's amazing how so many of us uh, this is what puts us off about reading the Bible. We read the Bible and we find that it's painful. We find that God disagrees with us and he disagrees with us about things that are important in our own lives. We find that God doesn't say the things we want to hear about ourselves or the values we hold. But where did we get the impression that God agreed with us or, or just rubber stamped our lives? 
And we all know, don't we, that when you find a friend in life who you know really loves you, who know, really knows you well, who has your best interests in heart and has the courage to tell you the truth about where you're going wrong, that is an incredibly valuable thing. How much more when we find the God of the universe who died because he loved us, who knows everything about us now and in the future, how we were made, what we've been made for, and is willing to speak the truth into our lives in love. Here is something incredibly valuable. Will we come to the scriptures and ask God to rebuke and correct? Would you invite God to rebuke and correct you in his word? And finally, and I'll finish with this, Paul uh, says the scripture is used for training in righteousness and equipping us for all good deeds. Training and equipping us for righteousness and all good deeds. And I guess I just want to end by saying, if you have any kind of ambition for being of any use to God, if you have any ambition for doing any kind of damage in the fight to further his kingdom, if you, if you want to look back in your life and say, wow, that was a, a life well spent, then invest yourself in the scriptures or let them invest in you. If you want to speak on behalf of God, Find out what he has to say. If you want to pray effectively, you have to know what he wills, what his heart is about. If you want to be fruitful in sharing your faith, then set your feet on the rock that is the gospel every day, and the gospel will spring out of you. If you want to be involved in transforming business or government or a part of the world, then get to know how God sees the world, how he wants to change it, the tools that he has and hasn't given you to change the world. If you want to lead a church, for goodness sake, don't think about doing it until you've let scripture refashion your view of both what leadership is and what the church is. And I could go on. There really is no area of the Christian life, calling, or anything at all of value that if you let scripture into your life will not strengthen you and encourage you and equip you in. So, why was Voltaire wrong? Why is Paul so adamant that Timothy shouldn't abandon Scripture? Why would he be saying it to us today? Don't let go of it. However hard it is, however complicated it is, however challenging it is, don't let go of it. It's because Paul has come to the conviction that this is one of the places God speaks to us. That he, he has purposes for our lives. He wants to change us, meet us in it. And that it's, it's gold. Why do I read the Bible? It's a gold mine. <laughs> That's why. You mine where the gold is. Let's pray that God would give us those convictions ourselves. Lord, uh, Lord, we thank you for the small ways in which we have heard you speak to us in the scriptures already. And thank you for how over the ages, including to Paul and Timothy, you have met with them, changed them, and equipped them for your purposes. And wherever we are with your word at the moment, finding it easy or finding it hard, Lord, we pray that you would teach us anew to meet with you in your word. Amen.